about what it takes um, to set the conditions in place for that enlightenment to occur and to appreciate along the way what you're attaining. And I'm sure you already know, but I probably should say that, of course, if we have any kind of... um, pride or inflation in the sense of self based on something we think we've achieved, we're going the wrong way. That's not what attainment does. It's humbling. Little signpost. I I feel like we've covered we've covered the material, I would say, that was intended. And now I want to just tell you a few stories about the the enlightened, the awakening experience that we've heard about. Some of you may have read about some of these people. I thought I'd start with Venerable Gosananda, the Cambodian monk. How many of you have read his biography? Yeah. And so I don't have anything really more to report except that my first encounter with Um, hearing about him was through a monk who was a friend of my son's in Thailand. And he had um, a little uh, bhikkhu manual. There's a manual that the monks get with the essential chants and some of the vinaya stuff that's handy to know. And we now have a bhikkhuni manual. Um... No, we're actually still using the bhikkhu manual, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And he had pictures in the co- in the covers of the... And, and Gosananda's picture was one of them. And he talked about what that meant to him and how inspiring Gosananda was to him. And then just looking at what happened to Gosananda in terms of how he worked with what was happening for him in his life. As you may or may not know, he was was Cambodian, and he became a monk, and he was away studying abroad when um, the Khmer Rouge took over and killed all his family, many other people, many monks. And... Gosananda went, at one point, um, he went to the refugee camp, one of the refugee camps, and he set up a little area for himself in the corner, and he really 
had to practice with all of his feeling. So it's, it's very much like what we've been talking about. How do you work with the feeling that comes up? And he stayed there quite a while, and it was that work, that transformation that made it possible for him to really evolve and get to the place where he could do the things that he did, leading the marches through Cambodia in the face of all the violence and the danger, and provide the kind of inspiration and presence that came with the awakening that he had. It's a beautiful story. I recommend that you read about him if you haven't. It's very inspirational. There's another biography that you might be able to find. Have you read about Mei Chi Gao? It's, um... It's the title of that, you know? Mei Chi Gao. She was a nun in Thailand. She was... um, a student of Ajahn Mahabua, and she was married and had a child, and uh, I think it was an adopted child, actually. But then she le- she later became a nun, a Mei and practiced very diligently and practicing in a context where enlightenment was a reality. So this is something that we really miss here most of the time. We are, we're not around people that are enlightened or known to be enlightened, where the, the process of becoming enlightened is real and immediate and here and manifest in people. But she was there. And her meditation ability was really um, incredible. But it it turned out to be quite a challenge to overcome the the, what I want to say, like the clinging to the psychic states and powers that she had. So she had tremendous psychic ability. And she got kind of caught there. And it was Ajahn Mahabua that could really walk her through that and particularly help her be with her body and guide her through observing the body and observing the body deteriorate and, dis- and disintegrate. And that helped her get out of that whole psychic thing and clear about the actual letting go. So, you know, one thing that's important is it's very useful to find a good teacher who can guide you. And all of the teachers 
have their strengths and weaknesses. Even the arahants, you know, some of the monks in particular would go to to live in different monasteries, and it doesn't mean that you can actually stay with that person or learn from them just because they're attained. Um, but it's it's very important to, you know, whatever teacher you consult, take into account what they're saying and weigh it and try it and see if it works for you and make sure that it's in accordance with the Dhamma. That's our responsibility. And so sometimes people think, well, can I get enlightened? Uh, sometimes people ask, can a, can a woman get enlightened? Most of the stories, I mean, especially in Thailand, people would say things like that, of course. Of course. And then, can a layperson get enlightened? No. And um, there's another... Um, There's another person from Thailand. Have you heard of Upasika Ki? You may have read An Unentangled Knowing or Pure and Simple. Yeah. So she was a lay woman, but she lived like a nun. She went with her parent, no, her aunt and uncle, and moved into an abandoned monastery. And wouldn't it be nice if we had a few of those around? <laughs> Let's go move into abandoned monastery. And it was really tough at first. I mean, it was the, the, the land was wild and they had to do a lot of work and they were just kind of getting by and it was sometimes not so easy to have enough food. They ate kind of like from the, the trees and whatever was there. And, but eventually... Um, her practice was really strong, and she developed, and people started to come to learn from her, and then it really started to establish as a as a place where uh, particularly women would go to live and and train and practice. And she's um, known to have reached the level of arahant. There's a there's a museum in Thailand. I guess you'd call it a museum. There's kind of a, it's kind of a park-like place with all different kinds of temples and stupas, and there's this wax museum of all these arahants, and she's in the wax museum, and they're very lifelike. It's very interesting. There are some recorded talks of hers, and she sounds like a man. She sounds like a Thai Ajahn, just like any, you know, like, and, and speaks in the same way. Uh, very direct about aging, sickness, and death. Very direct about samsara and Nibbana. I think it's important to not have this idea that you can't do it. Um, don't let don't let anything get in the way. And the other, the last person I was thinking of talking about, or just telling you one little story, is there was a monk, and I actually don't remember his name. I think I know, may know, but it's not quite 
I'm not quite sure, so I'll leave it out. But as someone that Ajahn Pasano knew knows, and he's passed away now, this monk, he lived to be very old, and the other people around Avaigiri know him. And um, he made the determination that this he would he would attain enlightenment, realize nibbana in this lifetime, this monk. And one night in his hut, he woke up, and this huge snake had come in and swallowed his body up to about here, about his waist. And he he woke up with (laughs) this, and he said to this snake, I've made this determination to realize Nibbana, and if what you're doing now is going to help me, then you go ahead. But if this isn't going to make me realize Nibbana, you are in big trouble. (laughs) And the snake receded and went outside. And the next morning they found the snake there dead, actually. But that kind of determination... um, and actually, that comes up for me sometimes. If this is going to help me realize Nibbana, if this is going to help me move on the path, then bring it on. Because like I said, it doesn't really matter what happens to us. It's what we do with it. And making sure that we keep stay far away from doing anything wrong and if we do, to not carry that, to to use it, to practice, to uh, <coughs> discover and fo- and follow, walk the path of spiritual recovery from that action. So now I'd like you to ask any questions you have. Because those were the stories I thought of. Mm-hmm. Yes? So once a, a Naranahat has reached enlightenment, there are still karmic uh, forces acting on that person. Yes, there are still karmic forces. But they don't seem to have Right? That's right. They don't have the same effect. The relationship to those experiences is different. Some of the things um, that are conditioned by, you know, by the past actions might be the way in which we react, you know, so like anger arising or something like that, and that changes because the the roots of anger are cut off, for example. So that kind of stuff, the the patterns aren't the same, but the things that happen. Um, 
Yeah, they're not attached, so they're not going to have the same. It's not going to have the same impact on them. You know, like some disease or accident or misfortune or something that changes their their world. It's okay. So what? There's a story about. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's not like there's not any caring or compassion. Like Ajahn Mahabua was very ill for a while, and and people thought that was it. He was probably going to pass away. And at that time, Thailand, um, the government of Thailand had gone into debt, and Ajahn Mahabua just he he bounced back from this illness, and then he did a lot of campaigning to raise money so that they could they could uh, become solvent again. And he felt like that was an important thing to do for Thailand. But that's not done from some kind of personal need or gain or anything, just compassion. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes? You spoke about uh, delight being central pleasure strategy, fading and uh, coolness being a further step along this path. But what about uh, delight in nature and life without attachment? Why would that fade away? I don't know that it does. If you read the some of the poems of the monks in the Teragata, there's a lot of like joy in nature, but it's 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 different from a, a grasping and. A, Wanting a kind of gratification from like some sense pleasure. Does that? Well, they they talk about delight, delight in this and that, delight in the fruitcake, delight in the sexual relationship, delight in yeah. But that doesn't mean there's there. I mean, there's still there's still joy. There's still appreciation of um, you know something like like the natural environment. And and joy in seeing people progress on the path. It's like at our place, we have, um, it seems like a number of sort of younger men in particular come to our little monastery. And sometimes they're pretty new to Buddhism and they pick up the precepts and their life starts changing and you can see this glow in them and it's so fun. You know, and that's not a personal kind of desire or craving. You know, it's just it's just fun. It's delightful to see. That's mudita, appreciative joy. Yeah, the the people who have attained on the path are usually pretty happy. There's a you know, real buoyancy there. Ajahn Mahabu is known for being really gruff. That was his personality. Really, people were afraid of him. But Ajahn Pasano said there was one time when he had, Ajahn Pasano himself had been on a retreat for quite a while, and then he went to visit Ajahn Mahabu, and Ajahn Mahabu is like giving people all kind, you know, like kind of scolding people. 
But Ajahn Pasano said his own faculties were really clear, and what he could see was all this metta. So it's like, you know, yeah, it can present in different ways, but what's really going on? Interesting. Is it only from the reading that you were doing? I was getting from that that it only is an insight when it relates to the three characteristics. Is that true or not? Is it different from psychological insights? Yes, I would say it's different from psychological insights. Um, Because the insight into the way things actually are turns our usual way of seeing kind of upside down. Because usually we see things in terms of me and mine and gain and loss and, you know, the other worldly way, you know, all that stuff. But but a, an insight that helps us to see the way things actually are is like seeing that all of this is deteriorating, seeing that it's all falling away, seeing that you know, there's there's no need for clinging to anything in the five khandas. There's no need to be grasping to see the danger in in grasping in in that kind of sensual or selfing gratification, that kind of stuff. And then you know, realizing the escape. That's different from a psychological insight that says, oh, now I understand why I hate being late. Happy to. Um, one of the reasons that I'm a student of Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi is because he really sees the importance of Buddhists, Buddhist teachers um, engaging and being an example and inspiration, hopefully, in social justice, climate justice and other um, issues that are, you might say, more of the world. Because there's certainly, uh, generally, the kind of thing I'd been seeing is 
think climate change is such an important issue. It's huge, such an important issue, and yet most of the Theravadan teachers weren't talking about it at all. And it really gives the impression that this isn't important, or maybe some, you know, um, kind of reinforcement that maybe this isn't really happening. I mean, this is from a few years ago. Now I don't think hardly anybody thinks this isn't really happening. But, um, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the, the, I don't believe at all that the, the government leaders who say climate change isn't happening really believe that. They're not stupid. They're well-educated. They know what's happening. They just have a different agenda. So anyway, the, the, um, the value, I think it's very important for spiritual teachers of all kinds to stand up against the immorality that pushes these issues in the world um, we have to speak out. We have to call it for what it is and and step up uh, to some kind of leadership in that regard. Now, the thing that I think makes, well, what I've encountered is that some people feel like, well, if you get engaged in these things, then you're not really um, working for your own kind of development and maybe... Um, Maybe you get engaged and it kind of pulls you off center and get more kind of emotional or whatever. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Use your practice in it as well as anywhere else. And it's, it's really important to maintain a balance. And that's true for all of us and to maintain our practice, even though we're engaged. So some people are shy about getting involved in protests, or they may have visions or images or memories of protests that are um, you know, filled with anger, resentment, blame. And actually, all of, almost all of the ones I've been involved in have been really joyful. You're really standing up for something good. Like Gosananda, you know, what he did was so important to Cambodia. He really he really helped to heal Cambodia. And they're still suffering from that, all the, the killing of all the educated people, all the intellectuals and people who had skills. It's really, really heartbreaking. But without Gosananda going out and, and really walking the battlefield, and he did it, he did it to stop the violence. He did it to heal. You know, they have he, people from both sides of the conflict would come to the road he's walking on and lay down their weapons and bow and, and want the blessing, the water sprinkled on them, right? This was an incredible healing, bringing people back to the, to the faith that they had. Well... You know, this, this is the kind of thing that spiritual leadership is needed for and is very important as, as teachers are 
or practitioners as Buddhists to come out and be there with your practice. So we started this thing called the Buddhist Climate Action Network, and the intention is to help people connect to each other and go out together and sit and walk and meditate and chant and 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 be a presence of peace and and compassion. I don't see any conflict in that with personal practice. You take your personal practice with you. And, and as I said once before, it, when you get to a place where it's dragging you down, then turn your attention back to what builds you up in, in a wholesome way. Turn it back to the Dhamma and the practice. And remember that all of it's impermanent. It keeps changing, but we have to continue to stand up for the precepts and what's wholesome. So if there's... If there's hatred, we have to meet it with love. And we have to stand for that no matter, you know, what people may say or do. And it feels good. Because it is good. And then sometimes you just have to pull away and go away and take care of yourself and go on retreat. And let somebody else take the take the lead. Yes. Viraga? Is that the one you're asking about? Viraga? Yeah, there is that there is that aspect there of of revulsion or you just see like ugh. I mean, you know, the truth is the body is ugh. <laughs> and you know, you just realize that. But um I think what I meant is is that it's disgust without aversion. I think that's the key. You know it's disgusting, but you don't have to have aversion to it. Disgust without aversion. (laughs) Viraga, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The most technical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think for our purposes, looking at what the word means in this context. 
what's the experience like? Um, you know, it's got to be enough of a like disassociation to want you to turn to nibbana, to, that you'll turn to nibbana. You know, you really don't want this. You really don't want to come back. And and the the things that we can get hooked on that have us come back can be really, really deep and subtle. Things we might not even be conscious of. So it takes it takes a certain level of real disgust with you know, you when it's just you don't want that anymore. Sometimes when I'm in nature, I think, well, why wouldn't I want to come back? It's lovely here. And then I remind myself, but animals eat each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, I remind myself of those things to keep that balance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, subtle using, yeah, using the, the death contemplations and the corpse contemplations and you know, we can we can help ourselves retain, remain, or regain our balance. Realistic view. Everything we want that we are conditioned, we are conditioned. Like if you like a certain color, you like a certain pattern, you like a certain kind of person, that's all conditioned. It comes from something in the past. Everything we like and dislike. And at the level of full awakening, all of that is cut off. No matter how subtle. And he still might, you know, I think, um, I don't know, actually. Not being an arhant, I'm not sure how much you gravitate towards the things you're used to. But you still do things the way you're used to doing them. Ajahn Bliyan in Australia, you know, he's, he's there, they've got a shower, but the monks are carrying bucks of wa- buckets of water because he's used to a bucket shower. You gotta turn that thing on and spray on me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Yes? This is a, a sort of basic question, but um, inside meditation, I've seen that there are many positions, but are there subtle differences? Yes. Uh, yes, I would say so. Um, I mean, it depends on, you know, the teaching you're receiving in the insight um, tradition. It's You just need to be careful that you're really working with the entirety of the path. So now, in many areas, there's so much emphasis on mindfulness. And it may not actually be mindfulness in reality, because, you know, 
a kind of little baby step into mindfulness is, you know, being aware of what you're eating and all that. But real mindfulness is more, you know, about being able to be present with this deep grief, anxiety, fear, and have this ground of, of stability and wisdom that you're, you're standing upon, this awareness. Um, and anyway, there can be such a focus on mindfulness that we don't really work so much with renunciation and precepts. And it's very easy to get into a thing where you, have, you can have your cake and eat it too. And it's important to come back to the actual teachings, come back to the suttas, and look at the ones that you're not so attracted to. Because that's part of the real, the real early Buddhism Theravada training, teaching. And if you, if you want that, then really study the Pali Canon. And don't brush it off like, oh, well, these suttas are all about devas, and I don't really get into that. So what can you learn from that? What's there that, like I've heard Theravadan teachers who aren't, you know, they really don't believe in rebirth, and they really don't, they basically teach that that's not the real thing. And I feel like they're teaching something, but it's not Buddhism. Because if you... If you read what the Buddha actually said, it's clear. You'd have to ignore a lot of the Pali Canon. Well, if the focus is is so much on mindfulness that you're not looking at, you know, the other aspects of the path so much, like. You know, even, well, the Noble Eightfold Path, just make sure that it's all there in your practice and your understanding. <coughs> and and it's, 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 it's very, it varies, you know, teacher to teacher, what they're actually, how much of the breadth of the teachings they're actually covering. So it's not a, a blanket... Um, you know, kind of, I'm not dissing the insight movement. There's been a tremendous amount of good coming from it. But we have to have these, we have to have these reflections about everybody and and every group. You know, are we, are we on the track or not? Are we letting ourselves water it down too much? Are we, are we really willing to look at the stuff that's not so attractive? Is there any part of my life I really don't want to change to line up with what the Buddha taught? Well, we have to look at that. Yeah, we don't want to do Buddhism light. Sometimes you have to be light in the beginning as a Buddha. The Buddha talked differently to different people, and a lot of different people come forward, and he didn't hit them right away with the heaviest stuff. He prepared them, and then when they were ready, gave them the more, you know, kind of 
subtle or profound teachings because he was waiting for them to be ready. But he never changed the Dhamma. He never compromised on what the Dhamma meant. He just knew what he could present it when. And so if, you know, things get... Things bring in other influences that kind of mix things up or leave things out. Um, and really, really look at why. Is this just a message for the beginner that we need to then go deeper later on? We have to get past just bare attention, say. Yeah. In my world, it is. I'm, a, like I said, Orthodox Buddhist. I'm early Buddhist, really. I don't, I don't study the commentary. I don't study, um, you know, like the Sudhimaga or the Abhidhamma, because I like the Pali Canon. And I really appreciate Bhante Analio's work because he's looking at the Chinese agamas and, you know, making some educated guesses about what was actually there from the beginning and what might have been added later. And that doesn't, I like his approach because he's not saying that the later editions are not valuable, but to just have a deeper, under, a, a clearer understanding of of what's um, probably more original. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're they're really focused on the Pali Canon, and Ajahn Chah wanted the Westerners to read less and practice more, because the real it it happens in here, in the heart, in the mind. So, you know, we we need to make sure that what we're giving the mind is true. And then, you know, practice and know for yourself. And I think that's part of the thing about feeling like, you know, maybe I can't know for myself because I don't have psychic powers or I don't know, you know, whatever. I'll never get that. But don't think like that. When the Buddha said, don't take anything on blind faith, he was saying, you have to know for yourself. That means you have to practice deep enough to have the experience. The direct experience is what matters. And then when you have that and you think, Wow, that doesn't sound like it said in the book. That's that's right. It probably won't. It's different than that. You can't really describe these things. Or then you go, Oh, that's what the Buddha was talking about there. Wow. So that's the point. You can't really take anybody else's word for it. And the other thing that I appreciate um, that you see in some of the suttas in the Diganakaya in particular, where the Buddha talks about how we can get the wrong idea by having like one experience. So he, he talks about someone who has a one, one past life memory or a few past life memories, and then they think, oh, that's how it is. So that's the way they teach it. But actually, that's not how it is. It's only part of the picture. 
And we have to watch for that in reading the suttas too, because the Buddha will have, you know, one description in one place, another description in another place that has more components to it. And and if you think you can just look at this one sutta and know what the Buddha means, that's the part he taught at that moment, but there's more to it. So we need to be careful not to make assumptions. Well, this is the way it is, unless we have a broader knowledge. Yeah. putting on some kind of role, becoming something. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things I love about monastic life and about monastic teachers. It's like somebody said to me once when they used to live, this person lived at a Baigiri, and she said, yeah, I see Ajahn Pasano from the morning till, you know, I see it, I watch him, he's, he's eating, he's coming in and out of the bathroom, he's, you know, like all day long working everything. It's not like, he breezes in, teaches something, and goes home and does whatever. Mm-hmm. You see, you know what this person's life is all the time. You know, it's right there. And that is really, it's like they are being themselves. It's like you, this is, they're living their life working with the Dhamma and all the things that, you know, they're talking about. You know, before the work starts, they give you a reflection, and then at the meal, they give you a reflection, and then they give you a talk later, and there's tea time, they're answering questions, and it's just like all immersion. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happens with people who have like a whole life, and then they teach. It doesn't mean that's necessarily bad, but it's different. And, And it's true that if we... And it happens sometimes when people start out, like you said, you might... You know, you're trying to be loving, kindness, um, you know, manifest. And, yeah, we have to, we have to really, it's with practice that we can be, and if we have the intention, and want to really be brutally honest, which is what it takes. We have to be brutally honest with it. Yeah. 
yeah, it's supposed to take like 300 years for a religion to get established in a new area, a new country. So we're only in the first hundred years. So it will take a while. And it's not to criticize, it's just to, just to be aware. It's like, it's like we, we all need to be really, really honest. Honest with ourselves. What am I really doing? What is this mind really doing? You know, honest with each other, kind, and uh, and just keep trying to to refine and grow. Encourage the good. Point out the bad when it's the right time, like the Buddha would say. You know, be truthful. But if if you're saying something or you're hearing something that doesn't line up with the Dhamma that the Buddha would never say if you start to get a gist of what he said in, in, in the canon, then that's something to really look, look at. Red flag. The Buddha wouldn't have said that. So let's look at that. Well, the, from what I understand, the Pali Canon was put down in writing about 500 years. Is that right, sister? 500 years after the Buddha lived. And before that, it was transmitted orally. And, you know, there was a, a, a strong discipline for keeping the accuracy. And as Bhante Analyo says, you know, you see some errors in transmission that you can recognize as errors in trans transmission by comparing um, parallel texts. And you can see kind of why they happen, because you'll see some list that um, is, there's a list here, and then the list over here has something else in, included in it it actually comes from some other place in the canon, but it's so similar that it just kind of gets put, you know, that kind of thing. So you can, like, with even with everyone's best intentions to, you know, repeat it exactly as it was, there are going to be some things like that, right? So it's useful to have some awareness of that. But when you look at the Pali canon, and, and it was put down in Sri Lanka in Pali because there was um, a lot of violence and war and there was a fear that the monks would get wiped out and then the, the teaching would be gone. And that's how it finally got put down in, in writing. And so, you know, it, it, there is a version in in Burma, and there is a version in Thailand, and then when someone like Bhikkhu Bodhi does a translation, he looks at all these different versions, and you know some of them have little bitty differences, but there's, as far as I have, I've not run across anything where they say this is a, a difference in like meaning or the way this is actually you know understood. So it holds together really, really well. There's tremendous consistency. 
So, you know, it's it's kind of as good as it gets. But when Buddhism moved to other countries, um, other cultures, then like any religion, it takes on some of what's in that culture, and you'll see um, the local religion mixing in and different traditions getting added. And in some places, then you see sort of new suttas coming or sutras coming, which are from later sources. And that doesn't mean that they're not good teachings. It's just that probably didn't come from the Buddha himself. Which is the Mahayana tradition, correct? Yeah, you see things in the Mahayana tradition, which is also the sort of... um, you know, Tibetan is a offshoot of that Zen. Is an is an aspect of that. And you know, I have I have good friends who are nuns and monks in those traditions, and I really admire them. And I think they're living in beautiful ways and teaching beautiful things. So this is not kind of to say anything bad about that. It's just not where my heart is. Yeah, it was very rigorous. Thanks to all of them. We're, we're, so, you know, we probably lost something by not still doing that ourselves, but we've also now got this wealth of material available to us, so we're very fortunate. The, the story of Gosananda is very short, so I would definitely read that. And you can get them at the... See it? You know, Ajahn Santi Dhamma's the one that wrote He wrote it, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I think there's some copies of it. 
Yeah, so, so, no, read that one for sure. Um, the Mei Chi Gao um, story will just take you right to village life in Thailand. It's absolutely worth reading. Mei Chi Gao, I think it's K A E W. And I think it was Ajahn Dick who, who did that one. Salianto. Yeah. Mechi. M-A-E-C-A-G-E, usually. M-A-E-C-A-G-E. I think that's usually the way it's spelled. But I think it's, um, there's a monk who lived with Ajahn Mahabuo who was, um, who's American, and I think he has a monastery now in Virginia. Um, and that's where you can find this and also the biography of Ajahn Mun, which is another really good one to read. Very inspiring. That was written by Ajahn Mahabua and translated by Ajahn Dick Salianto, I think is his Pali name, or something like that. And those books are for free distribution. You could find um, the monastery and write to them. You, and you can find those at Abayagiri probably too. Or write to Abayagiri, ask them. So I'd read them all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.